With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, I'm joined by Miami CPA Stanley Foodman to discuss the intersection of the Travel Act and FCPA enforcement. The Travel Act is a Kennedy-era law enforcement uh, legislation that helps the Department of Justice enforce the FCPA occasionally. We discuss how it's used in this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I have with me Stanley Foodman. Stanley wrote an article in J.D. Supra about, of all things, the Travel Act and its applicability to the FCPA. So I got in contact with Stanley, and uh, you will figure out very quickly he is not a lawyer, uh, but he has a great story and a great reason to write this piece. And it's something that every compliance practitioner needs to be aware of, the Travel Act application to the FCPA. So Stanley, first of all, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Sure. I'm a CPA since 1972, so I'm old and gray. Uh, I'm a former Florida Department of Law Enforcement uh, reserve agent, uh, specialized in investigating economic crimes of all kinds, including the economics of violent crime that would occur from time to time. Uh, I've was uh, been practicing in the forensic world since about 1982. Uh, and so what's happened is over a number of years, I I, I became, as I said, I became an FDLE reserve agent, and I've been doing uh, tax defense cases internationally for uh, some prominent uh, law firms in, in Miami-Dade County. I did some cases up in South Carolina uh, from attorneys all over the country. And when the fact, when the FACTA rules were passed uh, and signed into law in March 2010, I began evangelizing it to U.S. taxpayers living abroad. And, of course, to the bankers living abroad who were handling their money and at first thought it wasn't very uh, it wasn't very important. It was they had it on good authority. It was going to be repealed. And I kept trying to tell them that after 2008 and the economic crash, Congress really wanted money and they weren't going to repeal this. And then along came UBS and their scandal that created um, the the issue of the offshore voluntary disclosure program and the related uh Streamline programs. And in the process, I started looking at FCPA cases because attorneys were calling me. Um, I found FCPA to be in just another forensic accounting exercise called following the money. Where did it come from and where did it go to and who received it and who benefited from it? And uh, and I apply that to pretty much everything that I do. Um, 
We we follow the money. We trace uh, hidden assets, stolen assets. We look at uh, the issues of who's benefited from crimes, the issues of ultimate beneficial ownership of certain bank accounts. And we work at this pretty uh, pretty regularly. I mean, it's, not, it's a major part of my practice. You wrote an article that I found very interesting on several levels entitled Connecting the FCPA with the Travel Act. Um, Travel Act has been used in just a very few FCPA enforcement actions and cases. What got you interested in the tie between the Travel Act and the FCPA? Well, the FCPA, by its nature, doesn't necessarily corral individuals. It can, but it doesn't. It's been, it's been an issue. A lot of FCPA cases um, where they were able to convict corporations, the government had more trouble dealing with individuals because there's layers. It's sort of like dealing in a, in a way with, with the folks in, in, in the mafia where the, there's somebody being constantly shielding the person above them from, from, uh, from responsibility at a certain level. But what the Travel Act does is, what I found fascinating was it gave the federal government a chance to use state laws to prosecute the FCPA violations based upon the state prohibitions of corrupt practices dealing with bribery and other things. And it also allowed them to rope in, and it's allowed, I think, to expand somewhat the definition of what constitutes a government entity and some other things that are already in the FCPA. But once again, it allows them to, to go after uh, uh, a smaller, a, a sm- the fish inside of the big school of fish or the, or, or the, or the baby whales. It's, it's really interesting and it's been used in a number of cases and it's um, it was pretty smart when Bobby Kennedy passed it. He, he had something in mind uh, he had been chasing the Cosa Nostra for a while, and um, he had been on the uh, one of the major committees that was chasing them down. That's partly how he made a political career. And uh, he figured that if he could chase them through the state using state laws and linking onto them, they could prosecute people um, using the federal government could prosecute people using state laws as a backstop as, and as an assist and as an additional charge. So when I first stumbled across the Travel Act as a and how it can tie into the FCPA, I, I did the exercise of looking at every state to determine if they had laws prohibiting bribery uh, in states in both governmental contracts and commercial contracts. I was most interested in non-governmental commercial contracts because the FCPA does not apply in that situation. So it created a potential entirely new realm of liability. So one of the cases that uh, has used the Travel Act is called uh, CCI, and it came out of California. In California, the law there says that any payment above $1,500 for a commercial contract is illegal. So you can have a bribe $1,500 or under, um, not illegal. Now, in the great state of Texas, our legislature, in its infinite wisdom, has decreed that any benefit paid for a contract is illegal. Uh, So that means literally that a cup of coffee, a lunch, uh, probably anything more than a handshake. And uh, today, not doing a handshake might be considered that. Now, under the state of Texas, there's never been a prosecution 
under that law, hopefully for good reasons. But uh, I use that example to show the wide disparity in state laws in what constitutes commercial bribery as opposed to governmental bribery. And that's one of the things that always either intrigued me or scared me about the use of the Travel Act uh, because of this, this wide disparity. And uh, many people are not thinking about state commercial laws. Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, because I'm looking backwards, along with the Travel Act, there was the Wire Act, Wire Fraud Act, and some other things that were passed around the same time. And they were designed, like I said uh, earlier, or like I alluded to earlier, for purposes of taking, of, of, of bringing to heel organized, or organized criminal figures using, using um, federal law and using state law to piggyback onto. And, um, this is another example. I mean, the question becomes um, who's benefiting if, if you use if you use commercial bribery laws, laws that, the laws that that prohibit you know commercial bribery. The question then becomes who is a government official? What is a relationship before be, between a relationship between a, a a small company or a commercial company and anybody in a government? who constitutes somebody who is a government official. And then if you take it down to the state and local levels, of course, uh, at some point, and it worries me, it's been a worry of mine for a long time, the federal government uh, uh, seems to like at times to um, to uh, take the powers that are reserved to the states and, and take on, hold on to them for, them, for itself. And it, it worries me that, we have begun to criminalize almost everything you can think of in the United States, a lot of which used to be purely civil or commercial. This is just another way to do it. So you mentioned, I think I wrote it down correctly, a little fish within a big school of fish. If a company uh, is liable under the FCPA, uh, we can have individual liability, and we have had individual liability under the FCPA. Is the reason to tie on the Travel Act simply to throw in these state charges, or do you see some other reason? No, I think that it allows the uh, federal government to bring pressure in ways that it would be more difficult to do if the Travel Act wasn't there. Um, you know, people, we all watch it on TV. The big bad prosecutor threatens somebody's family with prosecution. But if there are smaller down, people down the food chain in a corporation that know or should have known, according to the federal government, that something was occurring, and by virtue of the very fact that they're getting their salary or they're getting bonuses or anything else is happening, as a result of it, um, uh, and if they had any contact with any of these people in a foreign government or in any other situation where uh, folks are getting uh, benefits, then um, and I'm talking about the the other company um, that they're doing business with, or the other company that's somehow associated with the government that they're doing business with. I can see where it can become a great pressure point for the federal government to achieve its goal, which is to get a conviction. So a tangentially related issue to all of this is the issue of corporate internal investigations. Uh, if an allegation or fact is, arises that there's a potential FCPA violation, most companies will jump in and do an internal investigation. Um, with the uh, Yates memo, 
which specified that the Department of Justice was going to more actively prosecute individuals, which was issued in 2015, many internal investigations were turned over to the government to allow the government to go after individuals. It seems to me, um, to kind of tie into what you're saying, that if the government is going to use these um, internal investigations to go after individuals, these internal investigations may lack the criminal procedural protections that a U.S. prosecutor might have to use as well. Is that something you've seen or not seen? Well, I'm not a lawyer, but I can tell you, or an attorney, but I can tell you that um, the amount of, in private industry, and particularly, it's, I've seen it in the financial services industry, but I've seen it in others, there's a reluctance to uh, hang the dirty laundry on the line to dry. Um, so if the federal government is, is, is receiving these particular, um, or these cases, are, internal cases are being turned over, it allows the folks inside to not be in a position of perhaps having to face questions of regarding their own, um, not so much implication in the, in the crime that's being investigated, but their behavior thereafter and whether or not they're actually or whether or not they, they can be presumed or seen to be um, by a very by a, a prosecutor to be um, uh, not cooperative. And there's no, it, it removes all of the shields and all of the, uh, obscurity and all of the, uh, the dark. It, it just, it, it makes things more transparent from one side. From the other side, prosecutors and their, the folks that work with them, whether it's the FBI or any other federal agency, they're prohibited from discussing anything with anybody while they're in the midst of an investigation, except those to whom they're supposed to report. So it creates another level of obscurity also from a different side. Um, I find it frightening, actually. Uh, it's because it's, we don't know what's going on behind the curtain when we're talking about the government. We just don't know. It's like, well, it's, it's just it's frightening to me. Sally, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on you or your practice, where could they go? They can go to uh, Foodman CPAs and Advisors on the Internet. They can reach me at uh, my office number, which is 305-365-1111, stanley at stanleyfoodman.com. And my cell phone is always available for those that are interested at 786-306-0876. We... um, we, we receive calls pretty much from all over the world lately, and it's, it's been really interesting to watch it happen. Uh, Stanley, we're going to link to your J.D. Super article on our show notes. Uh, I greatly hope we can continue this conversation. It would be my pleasure. I, uh, I think that there's a lot to be done with this. There's one other thing I'd just like to quickly drop in, and that is, which is not in my article, but I want you to, to we are, we've been reporting on it or publishing something like that I've been calling a convergence. It's been brought about by the convergence of FinCEN, uh, OFAC, and the Department of Justice through the FCPA and other laws where they're cross, they're using, they're using certain types of laws in all of these statutes or certain types of regulations in all these statutes for purposes of prosecuting uh, companies and individuals 
for inaccurate books and records. And so it's, it's, I'm watching this convergence occur. There've been a few cases of that recently that I've looked at and they've been a little bit, they've been very interesting to see how the government's doing it. It's like there's, they're creating a central database of information or regulatory information for their prosecutors and their agents to look at and, and be, be trained by. Well, that sounds very interesting. We'll have to explore that later. Yes, sir. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take a look at an issue related to the FCPA Compliance and Ethics. We have two great new podcast series on the Compliance Podcast Network that I hope you're aware of. The first one is Compliance and Coronavirus, where I try to bring sanity and clarity to the compliance practitioner and the business executive around coronavirus. Also, the Compliance Life features one CCO a month talking about their journey to the CCO chair and beyond in four parts. Uh, this month, that's Ryan Robillet and has who has a fascinating journey. Also, if you're a fan of Teddy Roosevelt, I have a series on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership hosted by Richard Lummis, where we're looking at Teddy Roosevelt, his life, his presidency and beyond, and what its messages are for the leaders of today. It's a fascinating series. I know you will enjoy it, and it's particularly important for compliance practitioners to uh, take a look at leadership skills. I hope you'll join me again next week for our next episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.